0: Eight, seven, six, five, four, three,
1: two, one. Welcome, everyone, to the forty second episode of the Outback Cast. As is tradition, we are going to be doing our Oscar omnibus. Uh, I think it's tradition. We've done this, what, is this third year we've done this? Somebody help me. All right, there we go. It's officially a tradition now and not just something that we happen to do back-to-back. Joining me today, Sean Glynnis. Hello. (laughs) You ready to talk about Birth of a Nation? You betcha. (laughs) Beautiful. Adam Myros is here. Uh, hi steve we're off to a better start this we time. are about off to a better start uh, before it was just me fumbling over some words and then laughing uncontrollably <laughs> so you know check out the blooper reel at the end of the episode that is not going to actually be there because i'm not going to take the time to do that uh jake Trapilas here hey 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 everybody jake how you doing pretty good steve what the fuck's going you? on in la man i saw a picture of, like a hole in the ground and it was raining and there's two cars in the sinkhole what's going on yeah, this rain is just fucking everything up. Yeah.
2: It's unprecedented. We've never seen this kind of weather before. Oh. Um,
3: yeah. You know, it seems like Trump has ended the great California drought. He has. Well, he has. This is Trump's yeah, I America. thought it was a city
4: of stars, not city of rain. Ooh. Is yeah, that your, uh, well.
5: <laughs> Sean's big hot week, take on the weather not.
1: in L.A. Uh, and then we have uh, acclaimed Irish filmmaker Neil Jordan.
5: <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is me. I have made many great films, uh, including one where I snuck a dong in. <laughs> Check it out.
1: Wait, which one of his movies has a dong in it?
5: Oh, are on. you kidding? Come on. It's a spoiler <laughs> alert. I'm not going to spoil it, Steve. Just watch all of the Neil yeah. Jordan films and just wait for the dong.
1: Don't <laughs> cry over it. Oh, the, cr- <laughs> the crying game. There, That's got a dong, yeah.
5: <laughs> well, sorry, I was I was thinking about Interview with the
1: Vampire. That's... <laughs>
5: I was sure, like that, that's that, that not means... a dog that's Tom Cruise.
1: Oh, you see that's that's where I went wrong there. Okay, well that makes more sense. Uh anyways, guys, we are going to go through uh, not only the best picture nominees but we're also going to kind of talk through some of the categories uh as is tradition here and probably on every other movie podcast in existence. So let's get things started off strong with a movie that I didn't bother to sit through because uh I could not be bothered to give a shit. Oddly enough, Considering who directed this film and what it's about, this is not the controversial best picture movie. Like, this, this is one that people seem to just generally enjoy on some level, and there's no negativity being thrown its way. And I, I can't figure out why that it's is. It's really weird. <laughs> uh, of course, I'm talking about Sean's favorite anti-Semitic war film, Hacksaw Ridge. What? What's... Okay, so... You guys, you guys all watch this, which is why I didn't watch it. Why is Hacksaw Ridge nominated for Best Picture? Like, can can you guys try and parse out for me, Jack? Maybe you can try and explain this to us.
5: Okay, so I'll I'll. Pre- I think I hate this more than every other person here. I think this is like we did a podcast a little while back about the worst movies twenty sixteen. If I had seen this when we did that, this would be. Backing up onto Dirty Grandpa territory, I oh my fucking God. loathe this film. Um, <laughs> Follow up question: it's,
1: Why wasn't Dirty Grandpa nominated for Best Picture?
5: You know what? They missed out there. They and there were there were opportunities. It had <laughs> actors and actresses.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, and uh, so, Dong
5: and Dong. Yeah. So <laughs> there you go. Go ahead. Somehow they missed out. So um, Hacksaw Ridge is it's a war movie. Hollywood loves war movie, Tale of Heroldom. It's based on a true story. Hollywood loves those. And Oscars, the, that's Oscar magnetism right there. Uh, so it's got those things going for it. And then it's just got a good of good amount of, of heartfelt human drama and then a whole load of pornographic violence. And that's basically Hacksaw Ridge. And I just think it is a terrible, terrible film.
1: So this is interesting, too, because... If there's one person I know that could enjoy some pornographic violence, it would probably be you, Jack.
5: Well, yeah, no, I love my I love my violence pornographic as can be, but this <laughs> is just it it doesn't make sense. This is a movie that doesn't understand its own thesis. I think un, like if you were familiar with The Passion of the Christ, which is also directed by Mel Gibson, I feel Hacksaw Ridge is the war movie equivalent of that in terms of You know the complaint against Passion the Christ was that no one, you know, for Christians and so on, no one loves or remembers Jesus because the Romans wailed on him for a couple of days. That isn't (laughs) really the story of Jesus, Uh, but that's what Mel Gibson focused on. It was just two hours of a bunch of people beating the living shit out of a guy. And Hacksaw Ridge is basically the tale of a of a hero, and this guy is a hero. He he was a pacifist. He refused to carry a rifle into battle in World War II. Um, was stationed. They they battled in a place called Hacksaw Ridge. Was the name of it. That's presumably not its actual name because it was in Japan. It'd be weird if <laughs> they named it that. But um, it was a really bad That's battle. A rough yes, translation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hacksaw Riju. It's spelled differently, So, a uh, bunch of entrenched Japanese soldiers. He was basically sent in with the American troops trying to displace them. It was just a bloodbath. Just everyone getting mowed down, explosions, all that stuff. This guy didn't even have a gun. Uh, when the Americans retreated, they were getting taken massive losses. He stayed up there. He... Real rolled around in the mud, just trying to get from different soldiers, patching them up as best he could. He was a medic, dropping them down. He, he was able to, they, it's on a cliff, he was uh, able to tie him up and kind of like roll them, like lower them down the cliff face to a base camp where they could get further medical treatment. It's estimated he like saved a hundred people's lives in this, just by staying up there basically under heavy enemy fire and just helping, just doing his best to get people out. This guy who didn't even have a gun to defend himself. So, I mean, it's this amazing story, but no one really remembers that story. He's not a hero because like just war is just so full of gore and blood and everything but like the middle section of this movie is just it is ridiculous it is uh it's like rambo four they're like the the fourth rambo movie with all the (laughs) cgi like heavy machine gun fire people's legs just flying everywhere it is absolutely perverse the way that mel gibson has built this film
4: and and that 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 part the like perversely like violent stuff is juxtaposed with like the opening and beginning which are just like so generic i like to to refer to this movie as war movie the war movie and it's it's just like you know you know those parts in like walk hard where it's making fun of how like generic the the like um the from walk the line like his his growing up in this family like how generic that was like that's what this movie is doing
5: absolutely Uh, yeah i mean that's that's the problem with it. Is if they try and build him up, he's a pacifist. He refused to bear arms. They just put in a scene at the start of the film where he gets when he was a kid. He fights with his brother. He hits his brother with a brick just because he's like they're they're really tussling hard and he just he does it in a fit of in kind of anger and he really seriously injures his brother and he really worries he's killed him for a second and it just at that point he just goes I will like never be violent again and that's like the, the film just focuses <laughs> on that. That's me? why he didn't bring a gun into war. That's that's what that happened and he's like. Okay, and then he sees a woman, pretty much just sees a woman, and he's just like, I'm gonna marry her, and they get married. It's like, so they have the woman present in the movie, because otherwise he wouldn't be a real, rounded, normal human being. Um, he decides he's just gonna be a medic, because he helps Guy. A guy gets hit by a car, and there's blood pouring out of his leg because the car is like landing on him, so they help him out, and he's like, oh, I could be a medic and it's like everything is just, just like his entire life is crystallized into these three
4: scenes of just right.
5: ridiculously literal and, cause and effect this is all in the first act yeah yeah no it, yeah. it jams all this in it's like it's it, and it's literally like this movie's about two hours 20 minutes long i think the first hour is just boring cause and effect incredible just yeah like, yeah and uh, well i guess i guess the first Thirty minutes or so, or forty minutes, is that? Then there's like thirty minutes of him in boot camp with the incredibly miscast Vince Vaughn doing doing like a Full Metal Jacket drill sergeant impersonation, and it's Vince fucking Vaughn. So they have so,
1: Vince Vaughn playing the Arlie Ermey role. That's yeah, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah.
0: Like, yeah. Why and it's did that like. Happen? <laughs>
4: Like you said, Cup, it's like uh, a lot of people love this movie or like really like actually like it. And so going into it, it's like, all right, I got to see this. Like this will be at least like interesting to watch. Mm-hmm. It's it's like I couldn't watch it. Like it just – like I challenged the rest of the thread after I watched it to like actually pay attention to this whole movie because it's so difficult.
5: Mm-hmm. It is. It's. It's like eye repellent. Really. Like I'm. I was trying to. I was trying to keep attention on it. And it's just like I said. There's not a real human emotion in the entire film. It is just completely and totally fabricated in the laziest fashion. The fact that Mel Gibson's up for Best Director, uh, I believe he's up for the. Yeah. Yeah. He's he's nominated for Best (laughs) Best Director as well. Uh, And he's like the worst thing in this whole movie. Like the director did a terrible job.
4: Uh, also, Andrew Garfield is up for Best Actor. <laughs> oh, Jesus. That's yeah. weird. Can we talk uh, – speaking of Andrew
3: Garfield, the, for me, this movie has an awful lot of Forrest Gump running through it, like just this sort of chartle-soaked Forrest Gump. Like the whole climax of the film is essentially – you know, I kept waiting for Garfield to go, like, Atlanta, a snake jumped up and bit me right in the <laughs> butt. It's just, it's just him carrying lieutenant Dan to safety for like forty five
5: minutes of uh that literally happens pretty much yeah yeah, oh, yeah the, the, the whole film is just and like to talk about the violence it's there's literally a scene in this this heartfelt like dreadful war as hell scenario where a man picks up the the legless torso of a dead fellow soldier and holds it up and uses it as a literal human shield as he runs <laughs> on a Japanese entrenchment. What? Like this happens in the movie? This is shit you wouldn't see in like the most batshit insane B grade Z grade action film. And Mel Gibson passes this off as like actual war. It is absolutely insane. There's one scene where a Japanese soldier runs at another soldier with, and he has a grenade, a live grenade, and it's like a kamikaze attack. And it just is this weird, awkward editing sequence where both men are just screaming at each other before they all blow up. It, <laughs> it is just a joke. It is terrible. There's, oh like, I have nothing kind to say about this movie. The violence is like, all the blood is like CG looking like, it's like fucking Land of the Dead, but like, weirdly enough, not as intelligent politically. Uh, this is just a terrible film from start to finish. There's okay. nothing about this film I would recommend. So, God, let me, uh, from my completely
1: uneducated position on the movie, I always like to think that in the best picture category, there's usually at least one dad movie. You know? <laughs> the one thing that dads across America can just, you know, they can go out there. And it's totally not a sissy art film. This is the dad movie for the Oscars. So Hacksaw Ridge seems like it's the dad movie because you know war is hell. Oh, it Depends, but, but at the same time, how can it be the dad movie when the when the main character and hero is a pacifist? So
3: it, it's like, well because the movies the movie's not a pacifist. That's yeah, right, right.
5: <laughs> yeah. That, it's, it's like literally this movie reminds me of Steven Seagal's On Deadly Ground. It's it's a, like another movie that doesn't understand or abide by its own central thesis. Like, Hacksaw Ridge posits that the man is a hero. As a pacifist, he just sees an incredible human being. But there's also the underlying element, which is, like, there better be a bunch of roughnecks ready to fuck shit up if we want to get anything done. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, so how how you know, vital is this guy? He saved some lives, sure. But, I mean, really, it's, it's all about got to kill people. Mm. You know, pacifism is fine as long as you're standing next to a thousand men willing to kill.
3: Yeah, I just, I don't, it doesn't prove its thesis at all. I don't even understand what it's attempting to say. Uh, it, it's just, it's a very problematic and sloppy film to me. Like, it's, it doesn't play by war movie rules. It's just, it's like he saw Saving Private Ryan and, and just was like, oh, I could do that. But, masturbating. Like, yeah, he goes through, it, I guess, structurally, it's almost similar to uh, a full metal jacket in the abrupt shift uh, from sort of, the boot camp and they're getting to know it to like Mm -hmm. throwing you in the middle of this war. But, but it's, it doesn't work at all. Like they, they go to this trouble to introduce like the, the gang he's going to be riding into war with. And you don't know any of these fucking people. They just like introduce them as characters and then you couldn't keep them straight. And they don't fucking have any moments in the film. They just turn into cannon fodder. It's just so bizarrely structured and miscalculated. It's so many turns.
2: It is like full metal jacket, except here both halves are shitty and no. <laughs> and uh, I would actually compare it closer to um American sniper, and it's it's structured like nearly the exact same way. We start with him as a child, and he grows up, and like a violent moment happens, and actually also an American sniper. It's a violent confrontation he has with his brother and like a schoolyard bully, and we find out, oh, this guy's really good at defending people, and so he goes up to be like this this guardian angel sniper in the army. And then the second half like gets really violent when he's on his missions and and that's and that's really here it's it's like it felt so much like American Sniper and it just it, everyone is saying like oh my god this is the film that's getting Mel Gibson out of director jail for saying bad things about Jews many years ago but it's really just a shitty derivative film and a poor excuse to have graphic violence spray on the screen yeah I don't see I,
3: how you could I, like to me this makes Clint would look like a fucking progressive and a half. Like at least he tried to look at the Japanese side of the war with letters from Iwo Jima. I haven't seen the film, but I know that's what his attempt was here. The Japanese are represented as like cartoon monsters who, uh, are just out there to fight America at every turn. And that's their entire motivation is just to be like, uh, the yellow man old charlie out there to fucking blow our shit up and yeah. they literally have the commanders commit seppuku i'm like what the fuck man this is just gross
5: <laughs> it seems it seems appropriate that i've i've recently seen a rumor that mel gibson 2 is actually being courted direct suicide squad 2 i could and i could that, see, yeah <laughs> that makes sense to me yeah. because he's a fucking shitty filmmaker mm-hmm. and suicide Squad 1 was a mess, so he can fuck the hell up out of the second edition of that.
1: Yeah, well, and the thing yeah. about Mel Gibson, uh, all of his movies are pretty shitty, but it's odd because they all have, like, common threads running through them, and you can kind of see him trying to work out his issues on screen. <laughs> like, Passion <laughs> of the Christ is just, like, you know, violent violence porn, basically. Uh, and I didn't like that one just because I knew the ending already. Uh <laughs> apocalyptico is apocalypto (laughs) apocalypto whatever the fuck it's called i don't know what the hell you know what i'm talking about uh that's again like uh, that one's not that bad it's fine like it's watchable even though I, i haven't seen it since it came out probably like 10 years ago um but it's basically just a series of scenes strung together so mel gibson can show us some hyper violence and then hacksaw ridge seems to follow that same line of logic too except this one is somehow a, a best picture nominee
5: yeah no i feel like mal gibson is convinced that he's like he's showing us how it really is mm-hmm. but it is nothing like that i mean his vision of war is like a it's basically like a an overexcited video game cut scene it's ridiculous
1: that's what it sounds yeah. like it just sounds like like a big dumb video game moment <laughs>
5: And it has, like, it's just got the regular, like, all those cliches of, like, the guy, you know, who, like, takes his helmet off and then gets shot in the head and all that. Like, this shit just keeps happening over and over again. Like, there's nothing in there you haven't really seen before until some dude picks up a fucking torso and uses it as a shield. At (laughs) which point you go, there's a reason I haven't seen that before because that's dumb.
1: That sounds like something they throw into one of those uh, edgy Wolverine movies they've been making. Hard R Wolverine uses a body as a shield.
3: I've seen uh, Total Recall. I think you're not going to top that human shield right there.
1: (laughs) That's a good point. All right, why don't we talk about something that we actually all like? How's that sound? Sounds great, Steve. What do you got? All right, here's what I got for you. Uh, It's a movie about fragile masculinity, so Sean can certainly relate. Uh, Manchester (laughs) by the Sea, which is, God, soul-crushing. Really glad I I, I decided to wake up and, uh, you know. Sit in front of the TV, eat my breakfast, and just have my my whole life destroyed by this movie. So, yeah, it was great. It was really nice. I,
4: I, I'm glad to hear you, you enjoyed it, Steve. Um, no, it was, it was
1: wonderful. It was great. But fucking hell,
4: man. <laughs> you yeah. Enjoyed the right word. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, like, appreciated. Appreciate is uh, the
1: correct word.
4: Oh, God. You don't say, like, you you, you say, oh, I like movies. You don't say, uh, what do you like? Uh, I appreciate movies. Nope. <laughs> <Yep. laughs> Anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a movie about fragile masculinity. Uh, It stars Casey Affleck, um, who's up for best actor. And and um, it takes place in the Boston area, which is pretty important um, about capturing a a certain class and um, even, even like, weather at some points. Like, it's pretty tangible in this movie. Um, But, yeah, it's this, like, Over two hour movie that it's it's not epic but it's long and it's mundane and it allows you to just like live in this space Um, and the whole thing's about grief Uh, it's about fragile masculinity and grief like intersecting um, as Casey Affleck is, is just this like janitor of like properties and. I don't know. It's hard to know where to where to start with this movie. But um, like I said, it it allows you to live in this space that it feels familiar to like middle and lower class people as they just like navigate their loss. And it's pretty tremendous loss, but it doesn't like it doesn't treat them as like these huge climactic moments. Um, It it tries to treat them as as uh, very just like how they affect you in the mundane. like um, So basically most of this film is about Casey Affleck's character's relationship with his nephew come adopted son um, because his brother died and so he was like the next of kin or whatever to take him or was assigned. And he's sort of like learning how to be a father and – uh well are we doing like spoilers through these? <laughs> yeah, I mean we Yeah, we, yeah, yeah, we're going to do that. It's not like a huge spoiler but no. it does like sort of like hit you. Well spoiler
5: uh, alert, America won the war. For <laughs> <Arkham> Ridge.
4: <laughs> yeah, 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 thank you. Um so you find out later like so this is a non-linear film and and the way that it 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 unfolds is is really nice but um you learn you learn um towards the middle of the movie that um that Casey Affleck and his wife Michelle Williams uh, lost their two daughters because of this uh, small mistake that Casey Affleck made in burning the house down when he was like drunk and high one night, um, and just like lit the 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 fireplace wrong or whatever. Um, <clears throat> but it, it it's all like it's on how this is all like even that he is this small mistake that he makes and, and it turns into like these traumatic events and, and that's sort of inverted in their grief where like, um, so he's playing father to, to his nephew and like, he doesn't know how to be like a good father to this nephew and this, like his nephew, like who's a pretty like tough kid, um, or at least like postures pretty tough. And like, he loses it one day, like trying to like put the, chicken back in the freezer and it's just all about like capturing these like these sort of micro scenes in life as you're trying to like figuring out how to to deal with your loss and i guess like the thing about how that's tied to masculinity is that and like I'm guessing this is also tied to the Boston area is that, like, Mm -hmm. you know, you're supposed to be a tough man and all of these moments uh, escalate when he's just, like, in the bar drinking by himself and just, like, thinks that people are talking about him or just, like, takes things really personally and um, gets into all these uh, physical altercations. Well, Um, and the thing about Manchester
1: that I really enjoyed is it's one of these movies where the expectation – I think with a, with a big independent production like this with some really big recognizable names is uh, kind of the, the Meryl Streep factor where if I see Meryl Streep's yeah. name atta- attached to something, if it's a serious drama, uh, then that drama is sort of just played up for these Oscar worthy moments. And Manchester by the Sea is really, really subdued and mm-hmm. very subtle. And I like the way that it, it just sort of presents – like when, when you experience a, a terrible trauma or you know, a horrible tragedy, whatever, it's not always expressed in these big like emotional meltdowns. And these characters are all basically assholes, and they're assholes who have all of these emotions that are pent up, and not only do they not know how to deal with them, but they just don't have the capacity to kind of – or the desire
4: to, to really yeah, and I think them. that's that's exhibited pretty well in, like, weird ways, like, where it's not always, like, about the grief itself, but, like, you know, like, his son, there's some pretty, like, interesting, funny, and sort of touching stuff about, like, his son trying to, like, sleep with his girlfriend and, like, how his dad has, to, or, like, how Casey Affleck has to, like, create diversions, and it's just, like, he doesn't have it within him to, like, small chat with, with like, with these girls' moms just so that this guy can, like, sleep with his girlfriend, and yeah. it, it's it's... It's a weird um, and really like smart look at at like the interior of this character and um, yeah yeah it, it, like I could watch him like they have these nice shots of him just like shoveling outside of a building and it's just like it feels really lived in mm-hmm. um, and I, I think I mentioned this off air um, a few days ago but it feels like lived in in a way that reminds me of like uh, Alexander Payne movies where um, everything just feels really like. I guess genuine for lack of a better word, but sure. um, like e- even down to like the clothes they wear or like um, the humidifier in the room and mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just like weird little touches that, that, that feel really nice. No, it really. Does. Yeah, I would, oh, go ahead, Jack.
5: No, I was just saying, Yeah, I would agree with that. Like I think it's a very as, – as Steve said, a very subdued film. I really like the way that it, it, it does and it, it builds into kind of these – unusual altercations it's not a bunch of people screaming at each other there's a lot of quiet Mm -hmm. conversations there's a lot going on underneath there's a lot of people not expressing what they're actually feeling um my only concern with manchester by the sea i don't know if anyone else had this is i do feel that the use of music at points in it is a little off kilter with the rest of the film for a film that is so subdued there's the central flashback where we kind of unveil casey affleck's his mistake what really kind of broke him as a man and just uh, the music playing over that, I just, I feel like it, it's not a mistake. It's not bad. It just feels unnecessary. It feels like maybe yeah. just mm-hmm. a little layer that could have been pulled back. But I mean, that's literally, that's my my biggest complaint about this movie is that maybe something and, didn't quite need to be there, but it's really not I a
4: about, problem. Uh, I, I had heard you mention it and maybe somebody else too, or, or like not necessarily. Yeah, I had he- heard other people talk about that as like a thing, but um, I, I, I kind of, I kind of I definitely see where you were coming from. What I did like about the music in those scenes is that like that comes in a flashback that's pretty long and um and it w- the music works well as like something that isolates that from the present narrative. Uh but it definitely could have been like different music, like not as dramatic, but I, I think I think the music w- works on some levels but isn't exactly like the perfect choice.
5: Mhm. Yeah.
1: There's there's some moments where I, I really like the music. Uh, there's this one scene at the end where the the son, the kid, he's he's like I don't know, he's walking somewhere and he's just kind of like dragging a stick along the fence and the music kind of swells up a mm-hmm. little bit, uh, and, and that worked really well. But some of the things like there's the like, like you mentioned the flashback and uh, when he's when Casey Affleck is in the police station going over what happened with the fire, and then there's mm-hmm. that just the music just swells up and it gets really loud and then. That, it wasn't horrible. It didn't, like, obviously didn't ruin the movie for me. I absolutely love Manchester by the Sea. Uh, the thing that, that actually took me out of it a little bit more, there's this, like, old-timey jazz music that just plays sporadically throughout the movie. And at first, <laughs> I, and, and you can't, you couldn't really yeah. tell if it was diegetic or non-diegetic. And then it just sort of, like, switches between the two. I don't know. It's, it's really it, yeah odd.
4: It feels like a Woody choice. Allen movie all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's very, it's very Are you deliberate. sure you weren't watching La La Land? Maybe I was. That's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> but. I, I, wanted to a of, I wanted to touch on a couple of things uh, before we move on. Quickly, is that one Michelle Williams is like amazing in this movie, mm-hmm. and there's um, there's a scene that she's basically nominated for. This one scene uh, where they sort of like come back and touch, like they run into each other, and and it perfectly exhibits like how. Uh, repressed their feelings are And and how unwilling they're able to Express themselves and Michelle Williams Sort of like puts herself out there And as far as like expressing like Some like pent up feelings And Casey Affleck like mm-hmm. even though they're Generous sentiments like Casey Affleck doesn't know what to do um, And that bit of acting On both their parts is just like wonderful mm-hmm. um, The other thing is that um, I think Jack uh, and I Were kind of talking about this through the thread here and there But um uh, I think it's interesting to acknowledge uh, Casey Affleck's um, sexual abuse allegations juxtaposed with Nate Parker's. Um, so Nate Parker, who did Birth of a Nation, um, not the original the, the Birth remake. of Nation. No, but, that film's uh, over 100 years be, old.
5: Yeah, statute of <laughs> limitations would be up on whatever that guy's done.
4: <laughs> yeah. But uh, he, that was a whole different kind of abuse case, but... Um, uh yeah so Nate Parker uh did Birth of a Nation and that was um got like the most historic like deal out of Sundance and was was sort of like slated as an early like Oscar fave. Um everybody projected it to to be like this huge thing and especially like coming a couple years after like uh 12 Years a Slave it was sort of like this new movie about slavery that was good blah 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 whatever. And then people in the press brought up his sexual abuse case in college um and that like tore down the whole campaign for that movie and nobody considered it and it kept it from getting like a larger um uh distribution for sure mm-hmm. and so casey feel like these uh, abuse allegations that are like pretty numerous um they have been pretty like Squashed in the the press and 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 the uh, like, yeah he
5: settled out of court for all of them then none of sure. them have gone to trial and I think that's that seems to be the difference he, he well had also, money and the wherewithal to just settle out of court so that it yeah went away yeah. famous white his guy with money
4: his privilege is the difference or or like his class or whatever but um but also uh I've heard a case about like the press being not as willing to, to put themselves out there and talk about these or, or like you know bring them up because as a member of the press when doing that you're going to um chance your privileges in the future to people like Ben Affleck and Matt Damon um who are huge you know people in not just like in front of the camera um and you know ostracizing yourself from Casey Affleck is not going to do you any good um as a journalist. So that's a huge difference.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and it's it's definitely something that should be talked about too. But it's it's weird because I think everyone is aware that the allegations are out there, but you're right, no one ever ever talks about it, and it's Mm -hmm. it's just out outside of like film Twitter. That's that's about the only place you're gonna get any of that.
3: Seems like a
4: pretty shitty dude. (laughs) Yep. Yeah.
3: They say that about a lot of. I mean, like Fast Bender is supposed to be a a piece of garbage and whatnot, but I mean. Casey Affleck is always fantastic. Uh, mm-hmm. I I am saddened to he hear that he's a piece of garbage, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I uh, think he's absolutely
2: know. perfect in this movie.
3: I think yeah, he's absolutely. perfect in most things he does. I think he's a really really great actor. But this movie, I couldn't laud the performances enough across the board. I'm I'm kind of surprised it's not nominated in some other categories. I mean, Kyle Chandler sticks out. He was fantastic, and yeah. Luke Lucas Hedges is a relatively unknown playing uh, Patrick, the the nephew, if you will. Uh, also very, very good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I just – this is going to be near the top of everyone's list. I'd imagine it's just about a perfect film. and I just love the way it, it portrayed this grief and sort of self-flagellation mm-hmm. where he may have escaped – Legal punishment, but he almost yearned for that legal punishment, and kind of he he put himself in this prison uh, of a life, and you know he almost acts like someone out in the a prison yard, kind of.
5: Well, yeah, right. I think I think that's the point, like an element of the film is the fact that he made a mistake, and it really was just a, a mistake. There was no legal prosecution, so there was no social punishment. He just had the, right. the the loss of his family was hanging out there, and I mean there are scenes in the film that show how he. Is been, has been judged and become a social pariah, partially self-imposed, but also many people hold a grudge against him. And this, at one point, uh, one person, you know, kind of he goes looking for work at the the, do, the docks where, where he used to he grew up and used to work, and and the wife of one of the people down there kind of tells him, "Do not give him a job." You know, and she comes around later on in the film, but it's it's something um, that the, the town doesn't forget either, and he can't forget, and there's this circle of just repression that you know, a simple accident and something that undeniably is tragic, undeniably uh, the main character made a mistake, it's his fault, but it's not something that can be pursued through kind of any kind of a legal channel. It's something people have to sort out themselves emotionally, and that makes it that much more difficult
3: it's such an interesting portrayal of how a community reacts to something like that and to the point where his own wife has forgiven him and w- wishes he can move on but he he can't forgive himself in the end <laughs> it's uh it's a really wonderful film i would suggest everyone see it if you haven't all right yeah it's like the cinematic equivalent of
2: reading a very good novel and Every, like all the performances are perfect, and all the characters really feel like they're three D characters, and everyone is just so exquisitely fleshed out.
1: Mm-hmm. It's great. It's fucking great. All right, uh, let's talk about a movie that I don't think maybe six months ago any of us thought we'd be talking about right now, <laughs> yeah. and this movie. Well, let's let, first let's talk about Denzel Washington. Denzel Washington is a man where you often forget how good he can actually be when he's involved in something that he really cares about. Uh, Because, I I don't know, he he seems to jump on a lot of projects that... Are like shitty prestige Oscar bait, or just like generic action films that I don't care about, yeah, like I think blowing the,
4: stuff up and walking away. Yeah, his absurd up. like decades long
3: collaborations with Tony Scott.
1: Yeah, I think Tony <laughs> Scott kind of kind of derailed him for a little bit, and then now I think the prototypical Denzel movie in my mind is uh, Drunk Denzel flies the plane. What's that one called? Oh. Flight.
5: Flight, oh Flight. yeah, that's why I, I forgot the John name. Q. <laughs> Don't forget all those Antoine foucault collaborations.
3: Oh yeah, yeah, he's really, you know, hitched his wagon to some not so great stars. Yeah.
1: Hitched his wagon to
5: some <laughs> shit horses.
1: Uh, this movie, though, this is it is it Fences. It's based on an acclaimed play, and shockingly, you guys all seem to really like it. So, mario t- tell me uh. about Fences. Sell me on Fences
3: you didn't see fences cuff no i didn't see fences oh you should have done that it, oh, oh you know
1: i w- I, I watched l which was great but i yeah, maybe I should watch fences
3: yeah you gotta knock those bps out first um fences i didn't expect anything from this i mean it was based on a play and Denzel did direct it so i was kind of Expecting a visually boring, overwrought Wait second, uh, this, drama.
1: This is his directorial debut?
3: Or? This is not no, his debut. No, no he's oh, no. Directed Antoine Fisher, few, my friend. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's directed a few things okay. in his day. Sure, sure, sure. Nothing mm-hmm. especially great. But, All right. Uh, yeah. I, I, the so so I, was, <laughs> <laughs> I was expecting to appreciate it, but not really enjoy it. And uh, I don't think Denzel, the director, necessarily. Carried this film, but no. Denzel, Denzel, the actor, uh, brought his A game, and and yeah, I I get you. He's a, he's a lot like Tom Cruise or someone like that uh, who gets by on charisma in a lot of cases. But you you do forget how good he can be, and yeah, this film is you know it's a seminal piece of African American uh, literature uh, as a play, and bringing it to the screen, it was pretty much word for word it was it was a very literal transcription as i understand it uh, down to its flaws and all but we'll, we could talk about that last uh, <laughs> last little bit there when we get there but, but it, it it's basically just about a family and uh yeah it's about Denzel Washington's character uh Troy Maxson who is he was raising a son and, and has lived with Viola Davis for uh, yeah, by I think what was it, sixteen years, eighteen years, something of that nature. Yeah. But uh, yeah, anyhow, they it's it's just about life in in the 1950s for African Americans, and it could be something that didn't work. But Denzel Washington is so very charismatic and, and carries this the whole way, and Viola Davis is amazing as well. It's another. It, it stands right next to Manchester performance-wise. It's just uh, a wonderful film. I really, 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 it blew me away. I was expecting a typical Oscar throw-in, and what I got was something more, something that
4: felt seminal and important Mm. yeah i mean when i saw i remember seeing the trailer for this and i was like holy cow that looks like a dumpster fire like just like acting 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 (laughs) which i guess it is but like it's it's levied correctly but uh you mentioned like manchester by the sea and and i think this also could be about like you could talk about it in terms of fragile masculinity because troy denzel's character plays this like wash up guy who like still is like holding on to his his past – like trying to sort of revision himself as like this this great undiscovered baseball player and he, he sucks. Like the dude sucks at life and he's a sucky husband, a sucky dad and well, – yeah, yeah he's but he, his- he's the last person to admit it.
5: Yeah, he's he's made his mistakes. I mean, I I guess part of the, there's I mean the numerous themes that run through this film. Um, I guess part one of the themes that runs through it is the fact that for African Americans living at this time in the 1950s, this was still in time of uh, segregation and so on. In the United States that for African Americans there really there was no. If you slipped off the path, there was really no way to get back on there again. Uh, and Denzel Washington is a man who has slipped off the paths on several occasions. And he's professionally he he was a promising baseball player, but he ended up getting into I think he he murdered a man that was you know botched robbery. So he served some time for that, and that ruined his athletic career. He was
3: too well, old wasn't it? When he came I- out. Yeah, I believe didn't they actually state that he he learned baseball in prison so I believe he took up baseball very late in life and was it was excellent I was, I, thought,
5: I thought I thought that he missed out on it based on on his
4: uh
3: See, my he understanding was colleges.
4: that he blamed racism.
3: My understanding was that he was in his 40s when he was freed and attempted to play baseball, but had learned well,
5: baseball. Well, yeah, I, I thought he played it beforehand, but certainly the, the prospect was that prison. His 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 blaming was that in prison. By the time he got out of prison, he was too old to play, and he was one. He could have been one of the greatest, but he just he missed that opportunity. But really it was his fault that he missed the opportunity that say and it was in that in that instance that actually was a real crime he committed um he also tried the film he he's, uh, he he's he sleeps with another woman um, even though Viola Davis his wife is incredibly faithful to him supportive but he just he he can't seem to control his impulses when he when he gets going so yeah it's it's an interesting portrait of a man who is basically his own worst enemy who has very little support in society he's he's making his way as best he can but he's he's continually underscoring himself or undercutting himself and he's trying to hold his sons to the same, he's trying to hold them down to make sure that they, don't, that they don't surpass him. And he's got one older son who seems to be kind of a shiftless layabout in his estimation, who plays jazz, but, you know, kind of is still grifting for money and so on. And he's a younger son who wants to play football, wants to be like his father, wants to be a sporting hero. But Denzel keeps undercutting that because sports didn't work for him. So he wants him to learn an honest trade. And there's this tension between them of, does he not want him to try sports because he might, his son might be better than him. He might succeed where his father failed and then his father might have to acknowledge that he really did fail and it wasn't some mm-hmm. larger social element. And um, I've say of this film i I think it's a really great film i think it's it's an interesting there's always an interesting tension in this in this kind of concept of adapting a play to the screen It is right. a highly theatrical film it is there the, obviously the camera moves there's editing you know it's it, it's a film it 's not set in a single location it mostly takes place in their backyard but i mean they move outside of that several times in the film but it it still has very much that kind of closeness uh Time, sense of time and and location that a play would have, and it really it's monologues. It's like when a character starts talking, they can talk nonstop for six, seven minutes. It's like Denzel Washington delivers. Speech after speech after speech, which is part of his character. He's, as Adam said, incredibly charismatic. He's very well spoken, but um, it's it's an interesting uh, tension to that that it's not it's not the same as being in the theatre. You know, the the power of the spoken word, the power of a monologue, is very different. Kind of electrifying in a theatrical live setting. In a film, think- it can sometimes be overbearing. This film, I think, tempers it quite well. I feel. You know, maybe maybe one of my issues with this film, if I have, and I reiterated, it's a very good film. I feel it's a little long in the tooth, but then again, the play itself looks to run like three hours. It's a very long play, so maybe that's you know Denzel Washington's faithfulness to the source material. Maybe it inherited some potential flaws in the from the original play as well, or maybe you know it may not play that way in in the theater. I don't know.
4: I think some of the adaptation as well, like that is sort of aired is, is spatially. Like, um, I think it's it's pretty like sort of annoying the fact that like they're basically yelling nonstop at the back of this yard, and it's only like acknowledged its neighbors like once or something like that and that's that seems like a very like play thing where you only have a certain amount of people on stage so you don't have to like factor in other people in this world like you don't have to factor in an entire world when you're on a play like it's a very concentrated thing yeah there's a conceptual
5: space that film film is literal film provides a literal space it is their backyard it's not a uh, whatever a simulacrum of their backyard it's a theatrical space it's true. I, I kind of envisioned while, while I was watching the film that there could be a separate film of uh, their neighbors just looking out the window and thinking, "Like God, are they doing monologues again?"
3: <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. yeah. I it is an interesting film as an African American piece of culture as well as just a general piece of culture. I Me, mean, like the idea of growing up in in someone's shadow who's so magnanimous and and beloved despite his flaws because of his his charisma is a pretty universal uh thing that that anyone can really grasp and uh, a lot of people have experienced and but conversely i i just think it's so interesting to uh view that sort of like lack of understanding of what opportunities his son might have that he didn't and you know just not not believing the world will change around him and
5: he's he's an oppressive character i mean absolutely so he's so uh, charismatic and so, so well spoken that he he suppresses those around him and i and i really i like viola davis who for some reason went for best supporting actress and she made that decision herself based on a potentially being an easier category to win she is not a supporting actress in this she is phenomenal and really she's the only major female character in the film she's the lead actress without question um she really has to absorb denzel washington's energy and just kind of feed it back slowly in you know be his interlocutor in 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 her various conversations and there's a dramatic turn in the film later on where denzel washington basically has a child with another woman And that child comes back to Viola Davis to raise. And there's this remarkable passage that Viola Davis has to realize of being the faithful wife um, and transition that to basically say that she will accept the child because the child is not. At fault, but that she has to basically deny the father. She has to deny her husband, and it's this incredible kind of a a interplay of personalities. Viola Davis is Denzel Washington goes through this film. He is a force of nature. He's he's spoken word, just shouting, flailing energy. And Viola Davis is kind of in the corner, but never never subdued. Like she is just this. She's incredible. Honestly, I think this is. In a way, almost it's almost more impressive than what Denzel Washington does. Yeah, Dennis I agree. All of the he gets to be the big character, and she has to has to work on the, the sidelines and feed into that and contextualize that. And that's a really impressive feat. I, I just I think it's such a disappointment in the sense that she relegated herself to supporting actress for this.
3: Well, it's also disappointing because uh, her and Michelle Williams, one of them's going to get the job. So. <laughs> Um, and, you know, I would just say, like, this scene, this movie also, much like uh, Manchester had the, the big Michelle Williams scene, which just kind of ripped my heart straight out of my chest, this one had a more quiet scene that did the same, which was actually toward the end with Troy just sitting alone at a bar and his his old friend who'd been kind of a ubiquitous presence throughout the film just kind of comes in and, and you realize that he's just lost everyone in his life and this this big person who's such a, a people person who needs attention and the spotlight and, and he suddenly it's just he he's alone and he's lost all these people who matter to him and it's just it's it's a change of pace for him because he's not bloviating and he almost can't get anyone to listen to his soliloquies uh and it's just
0: so so heartbreaking. Yeah. So the end.
5: The, yes, I was just going to say. I think that we can all agree, and I think this goes back to my idea of the, the, the tension between adapting for the stage. I believe this this would work on the stage, and it will the, the ending, the final shot of the mm. work in a theatrical setting because it's a it's a, a conceptualization of a space. It's not Wait a a space. Wait a second. Wait
6: a second. Is is this like is this like Greece? Like do they leave in a flying car at the end or <laughs>
5: kind of yes. Might as well. yes. in a flying garbage truck that Denzel drives for the African Americans to drive a flying garbage truck. <laughs>
6: so yeah. the, the end of the film involves uh, Denzel's brother
5: who is basically mentally He's mentally unwell, he's shell shock free, he received a war injury, got a mental plate in his head. Denzel is his ward, uh, tries to look after him, but also kind of took his money and invested in his own home. There's a, something of a tension in that, too, of, that Denzel took the money that his brother got for his war injury and maybe didn't appropriate, like didn't use it entirely for his brother's benefit, but at the same time, clearly has great love for his brother and tries to look after him. So a little. Unclearness there. But his brother basically, at the end of the film, it's the end Washington's character, has died. It's his funeral, the day of his funeral. And his brother carries around a bugle to communicate with St. Peter to let him know when to let people into heaven. It's something he talks about at length. His brother is just a, he He's constantly talking about a battle between good and evil and so on. And on. he has a special position in that. Um, he... he Blows the bugle and this loud noise and there's this light just emerges and it's it the clouds apart and the sun comes through and it's like it is this clear magical realist moment of that the heaven is open and that of character has moved in there. It doesn't play in the film. I d do. it's the film
3: Because well, it's, it's so bad. Yeah. Especially considering what it follows, which is just this this beautiful scene where the the two children are singing this song that that Denzel has has kind of been using throughout the film. And, you know, this is just prior to his funeral. And they're they're just kind of reminiscing and singing the song. and, And you actually pay attention to the lyrics of the song for the first time. And it's just a beautiful moment. And then, yeah.
5: That, yeah, yeah, it's, and yeah and like, like it, I, I think it blows
3: a trumpet. It's like oh.
5: I think. I think <laughs> it could work in the theater because it would just be a light going up. It would just be a, mm-hmm. like a theatrical light on a group of people having a moment together. But in the film, there's this shot of the sky and the clouds are in literal clouds, literal sunlight. You know, it's, it's all very. It feels very blunt, very literal, very kind of overpoweringly. Uh, magical, it, you know, and it just, I, think I think that, that was an an, an authorial mistake, mistake on Dennis Washington's part as putting it together for the screen. That it feels wrong; it feels out of tone.
3: Mm. I agree. They should have just lopped off that last ninety seconds, and, man. It'd have been about a ten-minute movie. Yeah. Mm. All right,
6: let's uh, let's talk a little bit about a movie that I think has flown under a lot of people's radar, even though it's it's nominated for Best Picture. Before it was nominated for Best Picture, I literally cannot recall a single critic or person discussing this movie. And maybe I'm not uh, I'm not tapped into the indie film zeitgeist enough here. Jake, what the hell's Lion? Tell me about it. That's a good question, Steve. I'm not sure I know myself. But I'm gonna... <laughs> Wait, what?
2: Lion is the latest attempt at Doctor by Hollywood or some Um, Basically, uh, every year we need a slumdog millionaire, and uh, what better than the cast the titular slumdog millionaire in a true story about a boy who gets separated from his home, grows up, moves to Australia, and then tracks down his home through Google Earth, you know, that old yarn. Um, What? yeah, Yeah, basically, it's about a little boy named Saru. He's about six or so. Uh, He's on a train with his brother, he gets separated from his brother, uh, drives the train about three miles away from his home, and he gets separated, and then we spend about 45 minutes of him trying to make it on his own in the slums of uh, India, and eventually he's found by the police and adopted by Nicole Kidman and her husband, and he grows up in Australia with them. Um, and then one day he decides he's going to try to track down his former home through the use of Google Earth, and, uh, believe it or not, he does, and he gets back and finds his mom again, and, uh, that's the story. That's lying.
5: Yeah, this uh, is our second best picture that's based on a true story after Hacksaw Ridge, as just I think that it, it feels like very much the, the true story paradigm. It's a, an impressive real story. But like as my tagline for this movie was that if Lion was a licker, it would have to... Or I guess if, if Boredom was a licker, then Lion would have to be advertised as a task strength. This is like the most potently boring film out of all of them. Like Hacksaw Ridge, I hated it. It's a yeah. horror film because I hate it, but Lion, I literally, I found it difficult to even look at this film. Like, <laughs> at no point did I give a shit what happened next. I mean, For all I know, Aliens could have shown up in the middle of the film, I probably like wasn't looking like that, that <laughs> they could have snuck anything into this movie and i probably wouldn't have noticed
6: this just sounds like a buzzfeed article i don't understand why this is a movie
5: it is uh, and I think that's, the, that's the problem with the film is that it's a remarkable real story and in a way this remarkable element to it of this this man's loss of his identity his indian identity raised by adoptive parents in australia this tension between losing his home uh, you know, adopting a new culture in in the film, yes, uh, the his, his parents who adopted him, the Australian couple who adopt him, also adopted another child from India, and that child does not integrate well at all. He's very troubled and, and a problematic son. Whereas uh, Death Patel's character is kind of an ideal son. He's you know he's going to college, he's bettering himself, he wants to be something. Their other son is kind of violent, has behavioral issues, is just very surly, and and you know he just he he can't come to terms with being out of place. He's such a much more interesting character in the film and he's hardly represented. It's the film doesn't it doesn't understand what would make a film interesting. It's really just kind of wow, isn't it incredible that he, you know, tracked down these people through Google Earth. That's amazing. But like you said, that's a BuzzFeed article. There's gotta be something yeah. more. And it's
0: not,
6: not there. there. No. Yeah. This sounds yeah. like oh, Long kid, and then Nicole Kidman is uh, the Great, great White, white messiah. messiah. Is that, is that what
0: that's sucks in this movie. She's, she's like, so annoying. What were you going to say, Jake? Yeah,
6: yeah, well, I was, I was just, just
2: going to go into it more, more and more say, it, say that, like, like what Jack, Jack said, said, we all hate Axel Ridge, Ridge, but I think Lion might be the slightly more offensive film just because it's the dullest film I've seen that's nominated for this Picture. Um, it's poorly structured, the entire sequence of him is a little bit lost in India, it takes about 45 minutes to get through, which in a better film would would probably take about 20 minutes, but in my mind, my mind, the producers are like, holy shit, we found this brilliant child actor, we need to write more stuff for him, okay, let's put him through like a a, a child sex laboring, and then, uh, okay, yeah, that's good. And, then, and, then, um, and, and I actually, I actually kind had of had hopes for the film, film once. Nicole, Nicole Kidman, Kidman showed up, because then, then it, it seemed drift to drift towards feeling some actual humanity. Um, but then Death of Tell grows up, up, and he gets that murder, and it all, it all just really... It, it just goes it goes I mean, shit.
5: i, mean, I got I I to say, I'm impressed. impressed like, the... the, the the that's best-known known blonde Australian, Australian actresses of 2016, 2016. Naomi Watts and, and Nicole Kidman. Between them, they shot
0: in and lying. And, and they, they are the as boring as they're working. So, Mara, Mara is, uh, is wonderful. a wonderful actress that's completely lost. She's business. in it. It's pretty much. Yeah. Yeah.
6: Yeah. There's a scene where Dev Patel, he's at this party and he sees this
2: snack food from his youth. Uh, And then members from India, India. and then then he's he's sitting like like, morose in a room somewhere, somewhere, and Rooney Mara comes, and he he, like has this whole confession, like like, I'm not who I really really am, am. and he actually he had been kidnapped by by Nicole Kidman, (laughs) and he (laughs) has to break
0: (laughs) out. But but was liked liked this movie. movie. What's that about? I don't think i to go so so far as that. I I think there's a good movie movie here somewhere. It's it's just got problems. (laughs) See, I liked the first 45 minutes that you guys were so impressively bored by. I thought it was, uh,
4: it on a freaking
0: track and following a kid (laughs) running. Well, I thought the kid was great and I thought it was it was it was some Washington biography? Was nice I have no, no no real problems with the first one. It's just you know following that oh, up. This fascinating study you know. of identity and
6: the cinematography would have been raised right. I I was, I was just.
5: <laughs> like, I was <laughs> like, literally, like, to, like, I didn't see this movie in theater. Like, I'm not sure if I could have made it in theater. Like I just couldn't look at this movie. I couldn't care less about what was happening.
0: See, I didn't have like such a grievous issue with it. I thought it was fine, and I thought. There was a potential there for something really fascinating that it really wasn't capitalized on, but I, I didn't hate mine, I thought it was just, uh, it was okay. I
3: thought there was a really fine 90 kind a of movie in there that, uh, that, that tugged at the heartstrings and uh, would have been a nice Osprey movie instead. What we got was a
0: uh, bloated two hour thing that had tremendous pacing problems. And yeah, I feel, I
5: feel I feel an interesting part of it is If you like like go to look into the trivia or the, the, the ideas, ideas behind the movie, Google apparently did, did a lot of work with the producers at this film to help that along in recreating. I, like, when this I, remember I remember when this was originally reported the news, mm-hmm. and this like, was it 2005, or so? it, it was like mid-office, I guess, yeah. and when it happened, when this story came to light. It was, um, sometime,
6: sometime
2: after 9-11. 9/11. Go, ahead. Oh, yeah, Go ahead.
5: Yeah, yeah. sometime
6: some
0: some after that, that's good enough, and that's for sure. Whenever. Whenever I see you, I <laughs> <to> <laughs> The lion. <laughs> Before lion, and after lion.
5: But, Google participated heavily to, like, give to help reconstruct what Google Maps would have looked like when he was actually searching at, at that time, time and they like, gave him, you know, resources. God, like, exactly, it's like that's the problem with this film. It, it literally thinks him looking at Google app is the interesting part of this whole story.
0: Yeah, I don't so so that's that's detail. That's what you That's part of the pacing problem right there. I don't want to see a fucking half hour of Dev Patel looking at a mouse. Yes, yes, Steve, that's the
2: climax of the film is Dev Patel's on the internet. What?
4: That's, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Myros, Myros. Sounds it sounded like you were about compelling. to go into this earlier, but uh, and and Jack, you have talked about this off air too. Like, what do you think are the interesting things of, like about identity that this movie could have like mined?
3: Well, I had this fractured sense of like who he was and how he related to Nicole Kidman, and he and as well as when they brought the brother in and a very nature versus nurture argument and. You know Nicole Kidman's character obviously was was feeling at some point a distance with him, and it's just like it is fascinating to take someone out of this well very different environment and also this very traumatic situation, and you yeah, the, know viewing what film, becomes of them.
5: Yeah, the film ends when they're reunited. It's kind of like they reunite, and it's really happy and wonderful, and like a whole. Fucking entire. that his
4: brother's village.
5: dead. <laughs> yeah, like an entire. Yeah, and he finds out his brother Which died. Which isn't
4: even in, in the
3: fucking back. movie. Why is that in the fucking movie? Because he. Did oh yeah. Out
5: later, but it's it, yeah, no, it's, I feel the film ends at that point, and it ends on this high note of like really this happiness, they're reunited. But I feel that's the start of a whole other struggle for identity that the movie just couldn't give a shit about. That's, and this movie just seems to just take an easy road towards something that's vaguely inspirational, and it does not look under the cover for a second. There's, like, no inner life to this movie.
3: Well, that's the thing to me. Even if he didn't find out till that moment that his brother died, why wouldn't the mother have, like, delivered that line? Couldn't that be in the fucking movie? Not just, like, a postscript fucking text <laughs> scrawl? Yes, like that literally emotional moment.
2: Literally, it says on, on text, he was reunited on this with his mother on this date. She never moved, so then Casey came home. Oh, by the way, his brother was hit by a train shortly after he got lost. That's what it says in the movie. <laughs>
3: say, that's a big
5: fucking deal. You <laughs> should have run the Benny Hill theme tune over that.
4: Oh, Lord. That's like ending, oh, that's, that's like that's, ending that's the that's Titanic like, as they hit the iceberg. Yeah.
2: Or like the un- end of Unbreakable. Which I don't really care for, but it, what it, it the split.
5: we're not going to get the Knife Shyamalan syndrome. Extended Universe. It's a standard, <laughs> right. it's just a true story syndrome that like they decide they just wrap up the loose ends with text that it will really stay with the audience. But it's like, who gives a shit? Like you're supposed to look at this in the movie. You can't just tack it on at the end. It is. But you know, it's just it's a movie that I think just hopefully misses the point, and it's not even entertaining or vaguely well put together to, you know, even be passably interesting. Like the only reason I think this movie will ever be watched again is possibly for poor school children in Australia that have to watch this as part of fucking culture studies or something. <laughs> All
0: right, let's move on. <laughs> you don't know you know want to talk more about, about Lion, come on uh, I would be lying if I said I did. Uh, we should talk about uh, Nicole Kidman's terrible hairpiece. <laughs> we'll, we'll get we'll into we'll in that because isn't she, is she nominated she, for anything? Best, uh, I, I should hope. Oh, yeah, I guess best supporting. supporting. Oh, okay. oh, oh, <laughs> we should get into
2: this. We should get into this. Uh, one, one of the supporting categories now. What do you think?
0: Oh, so we
6: still have uh, to talk about La La Man. we gotta talk about La La Man real way. quick. Alright. Alright. So. This, this is, Holland is obviously the front runner. It's already won, it's won a, a ton of awards, a ton board, so it's of acclaim. Uh, it's from, from the same director who did Whiplash, which, which was it? not, not last, last year, year before, was nominated yeah. for Best Picture. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Whiplash is fantastic dude. too, so if you haven't seen Man, that, check it out. Uh, it's uh, it's another, another movie about, about jazz, except, except this one kind of has a, uh, uh, well, well, I mean, kind of has, it's, it's a musical. Both a throwback to like American musicals and also kind of like, Jack Demme, like... like uh, yeah, it's it's
0: right? sure. work.
6: Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's basically. basically what we're, we're going for in terms of just yeah, the the color, color, the look, and the feel, and everything. And everything. The, the thing, the thing that, that I want to touch on, on first, first before we talk, talk about, about this movie, because the story, story itself, itself is pretty, pretty basic. basic. Uh, why are people why are so mad, mad at La La Land all of a sudden? sudden? Because it delivers an unrealistic trail of Hollywood. Oh, like basically every movie about Hollywood? Exactly.
5: <laughs> it's also, and, and it's, also, it's also, I mean, mean I, I, enjoy I enjoy the movie, it's okay. okay. I, mean, I think it is just, just okay. okay, but it, it, it's, it's, also okay. It, it, it's also basically a film that pauses, that daringly pauses the notion that if you're, you're an incredibly, incredibly privileged, privileged white person and, person and you follow your dreams, then and and that's great. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and, and if and, and if you and can't follow your dreams and you have, have to sell out for a little, little while and just maybe you make join an incredibly successful band and make you a huge amount of money, you know, you know that's, that's not so, so bad at all bad about either. You but you should follow you your dreams once you have the money in the bank and, and
6: a lot of other means, you means, means, so means, means at your so
0: disposal. So, and I think, you know, I don't think that's worth getting worked about. I think it's this movie to get a lot of fucking less than that. Well, I know, but it's got a are sure word written all over it. And that movie is
6: the huge
5: stabs. The heart. I just—it just felt a little bit problematic, problematic. to me. It's, it's not. Start, there's start, nothing really wrong with *La La Land*. It's just this is the movie that's probably, probably going to win ahead of *Moonlight*. And we'll get into *Moonlight*, Moonlight later, later, but it's, it's just like the 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 text the difference of narrative and worldview between these films and, and the idea that, that the, the, the academy may go with La La, La, Land, La, La Land just feels really problematic to me. Well,
0: well, it's so, so often a, a meta text on, on <coughs> Hollywood, Hollywood, and like even, even, even I was thinking about this day, I hadn't thought about this before, before but like, like even the title, title the title, title, like I don't know, this is a bit abstract, abstract so bear with me. But the title, title to me feels like. You know, you know how the title of a lot of other things sort of, like, plays into the narrative it's that it's uh, addressing? But, but La, La La Land feels more like this package for this movie you're about to go see. Like, like, like it feels a bit more exterior. Like, like, like the movie's not about La, La La Land as much as, like, La La Land is what you're about to go see. Uh, I don't know if that makes sense, but it, it, it feels more like a marketing thing. And this whole thing is about Glitz and Glamour and... Um, I mean, like, Chicago, back in 2003, won, like, so many awards, and it got, like, disciplines and glamour over substance, blah, 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 blah argument, but I think that this is a lot better than Chicago. Hey, hey Chicago, Chicago is, is an, an
6: unrealistic portrayal, portrayal of Chicago. Of
0: Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I've been to Chicago several times. I didn't hear be in that. favor. I I, I have a theory that I like
6: would like to float like, on La La Land, La and that, La I'm going to let La Jake kind of La dive into it. Sure. I feel like for maybe the last decade or so, um, and the, the first film that we can really pin this on is Crash, which is a pile of shit. We've talked about Crash a lot on this show just because it's kind of like our it's like our litmus test or like shitty Oscar bait. Uh, Crash obviously won Best Picture. It's garbage, and critics liked it, except that there was a divide between your traditional critics and... Bloggers who started to you know call it out and be like, no, it actually, Crash is shitty. And since then, I feel like a lot of smaller online critics feel like they have to they have to have a hot take on at least one of the best pictures in order to sort of drum up interest in whatever they're doing. And this year, for whatever reason, they felt like okay, the one that's not going to age well is La La Land. Even though, again, if no. you're
1: if you're, you're going to have a hot take. On one of the be- on one of the best pictures, it seems like Hacksaw Ridge is the obvious choice.
5: Yeah, like Hacksaw Ridge is worse than Crash. That's my hot take. It's a sig- <laughs> I think a significantly worse film than Crash by Paul Haggis. Lions a fucking uh, like movie Valium. It just kills everything in your brain and you just sit there and die slightly. Lala La Land does not need to be picked on from this lineup. There's some yeah, real... I think
3: we dope. might have an, another one coming in the next uh, segment as well. So. Sure, sure. But, I mean, d- does anybody else notice
1: this, that every year there's, like, one movie that critics, after giving it glowing praise, they sort of take a step back and go, actually no Yeah, I,
5: th- I, feel, I feel La La Land has got caught somewhat in a conversation in its context in relation to you know like I say Moonlight I feel that there's I think that's the problem there's a narrative being built between those two films mm-hmm. uh, and I think maybe that's it's unfair but it's also kind of to the point of these award ceremonies that they pit vastly different films against each other for the same award. And, I mean, if you're thinking about watching a movie and it's between La La Land and Moonlight, um, you're not going to, you know, one of those is going to be a better pick than the other based on your mood. They're not interchangeable films at all. Um, so I think I think that's maybe part of it. And then, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, There's it's old school feeling. I think there's a lot of people who are just like, they want to rag on it because it's kind of like a musical, but it's not as nice like the musical the old lavish musicals with Gene Kelly or whatever it's not up to like Ryan Gosling can't dance like Gene Kelly etc they just want to try and pick holes in it like that
4: I I don't know I have another theory though like that that's not really founded in much um, time or thought but uh, like musicals like La La Land or even Chicago or like uh, Singing in the Rain like it's about the ride it's about like the two hours that you're watching it like Mm -hmm not about the two hours and 20 minutes that you're watching it. It's about like the feelings that you think about that you ruminate upon like afterwards. La La Land is like, it's about dipping into this like, like world that has this like, obviously musical quality in terms of just like this harmony that just takes you along and like you just enjoy, I mean like not you, but I like really enjoy the feeling of watching La La Land. Do I think about it a ton afterwards? Like a little bit, there's definitely some stuff, but like, I don't think about it's big themes as much as it's just like this really well put together movie. That's fun to, to watch and enjoy. And there is something to that. I don't want to downplay that. Uh, but I, I, like, but when you're sitting down to blog the next day, like, I feel like that's more susceptible to to come to like oh this isn't lasting uh, I don't. It's a movie that's not rooted
3: in today at all, so I don't see why it wouldn't age well. I, I don't, I don't I'm buy not, that. I'm not, I
1: think, I'm not floating that as my opinion. I really enjoyed Lawyer. No, right, so.
4: right, right.
3: Yeah.
1: I well,
5: so, it's, but it's, that, it, does, uh, it toys with that idea. I mean, it has one of the musical numbers is interrupted by one of the characters' cell phones going off, and it's kind of like this little reminder that, oh, we're actually in the current day. You know, It's not like one of the old musicals. Everyone's got technology. Um, I like I think it I think it invites some like some of the, the the comparisons to the classics and maybe that is a dangerous thing to do. Um I mean I guess I'm probably the person who liked this film the least and I did enjoy it. I don't think it's a bad film. I don't think it's anywhere near as entertaining or as engaging as say, Whiplash is uh, Chazelle's previous film. I think his Uh, interests in old world Hollywood and old world jazz works much better as obsession in whiplash than it does as kind of whimsy in La La Land. I think he's, his his sense of whimsy I think is a little bit flat, a little bit kind of uh, superficial. Um, I don't don't know. It's just, it's a movie that to me it squanders some really interesting talent from like uh, and it doesn't squander it badly. It's not like it's a really really bad film I feel there's like the best moment of the movie for me literally the absolute best moment of the film is when there's a scene early on in the movie where Emma Stone goes to a party and Ryan Gosling is playing in an 80s cover band at the party because he that's his gig he had to take up because he got fired from his other job because he absolutely has to improvise because he lives jazz and uh, she requests what Flock of Seagulls song or something, um, Mm -hmm. and he has to play Mm -hmm. it. And there's this fantastic interplay between them where Emma Stone goes up front, she's singing and dancing and being really theatrical about it. And Ryan Gosling at first is kind of like, pissed off that he has to play the song but he's kind of won over he sees how she's mocking him but he also kind of, they they feed off each other they have this understanding that he he becomes in on the joke as well and that's like, at that moment Emma Stone and Ryan Gosling are like the two most beautiful people in the world, like it works, it's this incredible energy in the film and I don't think the film ever recreate something like that again. I really I felt that was the, the film peak there think- and that was just the moment where I was like, "Oh, I think this is going to work." And then hmm. it just never came back for me.
4: Oh man, I think the ending is uh I think the ending is is fantastic and and it it sort of like comes back to that like distanced uh visual play between each other, like connecting across other people in this room in a much different context after this huge like medley um and that goes through this alternative like reality if they if they would have done other things differently but um I think it plays on this chemistry without like talking to each other in this like extremely powerful way um what, which i want to ask you guys like do you guys think that the like what do you guys think of the ending do you think it's sad do you think it's sweet or is it like somewhere in between like something bittersweet because i've had like sort of this not necessarily argument but dialogue long standing with my girlfriend who thought that it was a positive ending um and maybe that i don't know maybe she was maybe we we're coming at it from different ways um but I think that it's... I, I, I thought it was really sad, and I was, like, crying at the end, and, like, then, like, one time when, when we went to see it a second time, it was, like, three guys and her, and, like, everyone but her was, was like, crying. So I don't know if there is, like, a gender dynamic to, like, who you're identifying with at the end as, to like, I, ooh, the, yeah.
5: That's interesting, because, again, I, like, I feel it wears its references to Umbrella of Cherbourg on its sleeve. That's a movie that the ending just crushes me, that kind of distance, the way that ends the like works out in that movie that's i think that's a desperately sad film it's beautiful film in this movie it's kind of like oh so they crossed us as lovers and it didn't exactly work out but you know they all follow their dreams and things are okay and it honestly it didn't feel sad to me or particularly happy it felt inauthentic it just felt like two very Hmm. lucky privileged people who (laughs) honestly they're they're Final setup is kind of telegraphed early on. It it's like it didn't surprise me in any way, shape, or form. What would have surprised me is if in that whole setup where they they have their whole he he envisions an entire alternate life. I really wish if in the alternate life where Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone had been together and they walk into the club, which in real life is Ryan Gosling's jazz club he set up, that if in the alternate world it had been an eighties covers club set up by the lead singer <laughs> of the band <laughs> he played in earlier, that would have been phenomenal. That actually I would love the film if that had just been done because that would be a really great joke to
2: to go back to what you were saying Sean I think it is a positive ending but I, it's absolutely a bittersweet one and, and a spoiler alert for those who haven't seen La La Land because they don't end up together and I've heard people say that oh they wanted them to end up together but you know they both ultimately achieve their lifelong dreams um, so they have that going for them but it is kind of sad to not see them stay together Um but yeah, I, I absolutely love this movie. Um, I've seen it three times. I plan to see it at least three more. And everything about it just sings beautifully for me. And people that hate on it, I, I genuinely don't understand what it is they're trying to say or what they're trying to prove. And I think it's like what Steve's saying is that it's very much in vogue for some critics to hate on La La Land. It's just this... This, uh, you know, empty exercise in in just. So this being is a your to, spot. To, to, to
4: <laughs> what? This is your suicide
2: yeah. spot. Sure, yeah, whatever that means.
5: Um, <laughs> the, the, I like I don't, I don't feel like I'm going out of my way, and I, like I said, I didn't hate it, but like I don't feel. Like I'm not. No, I'm not saying. This. I'm not saying
2: you, Jack. Sure. I'm saying there are people who are writing like think pieces on how this is just an offensive film and that it's yeah, more, no, it's I,
5: in, like like I know I watched it with my wife, and literally both of us turned each other at the end of it and we're like, that wasn't brilliant like and that was both of us so we're probably just both terrible people but um <laughs> like that it's i'm not alone at least that much but yeah, um yeah. yeah it's i don't know i felt there was just uh i it's it's okay it's fine there everything's lovely it is colorful the opening sequence is great um mm-hmm. It's got some really nice stuff. The floating—can we all at least agree that the thing in the observatory where they fly off into the sky is yes, yes, that's yes. bad? Can we just? Okay.
3: Yeah, I didn't care for that myself. Yeah. Okay. And this yeah, is what you this is my favorite film of the year so far, I'd say. And I, I think I'm just a, a sucker for Chazelle. I think I'll go where he he wants to take me uh, as far as films. I, I would agree with Jack that I don't think this is as good as Whiplash, but. I really, really like Whiplash, so uh that's not an insult. It's still fantastic for me. And I would say I'm pretty much in lockstep with Jake on that ending where it it did get me the second I saw that the fucking sign in his jazz club, uh I yeah, I lost it a bit, but I don't think it was like necessarily sad so much as it was just one of those things. I, I kinda get hung up on The choices you don't make in life and the people who drift out of your life and uh, it's just – it's a reality that some people find to be just a reality and some people find to be maybe unnecessarily sad and I I fall into that latter category.
2: I don't mind the floating sequence. I mean, it probably wouldn't bother you so much, but I do notice that the silhouettes are not actually Ryan Gosling. Stone. Right. that's in the Nelson. thing that gets me. Because he has like this very distinct hairline that is obviously not in that guy. But but that scene, I like it, and it gets a laugh every time I see it in the theaters because I'm watching it here in Los Angeles. And they're watching Rebel Without a Cause, and the characters go up to Griffith Observatory, and the power goes out um, or the film burns up. And then Ryan Gosling says, I have an idea. And the joke is that he can li- they can literally just drive up the hill from the movie theater they're at and go to the Griffith Observatory. And, um, you know, I don't, I'm not sure what their after hours policy is. Ah. Uh, but
5: can, can we talk – that's one thing that I thought was my, one of the big laughs that I took from this movie, which probably wasn't intended as such. Is there's a scene for just prior to that where Emma Stone is introduced to some douchebag business guy as a possible date, potential – um, and th- he's supposed to be a douchebag and his friend's supposed to be a douchebag and you're supposed to hate them. And they're having a talk about how you can't go to the cinema anymore because people are so rude and home theater is where it's at. And like every, you know, you can't control the temperature people are rude and everything. And literally the next scene, Emma Stone walks out on there. She's like, screw this. And she's going to go and watch Rebel Without a Cause with Ryan Gosling. The next scene, she walks into a theater, the movie is playing, and she just walks up to the front of the theater and stands in front of the screen trying to find Ryan Gosling and blocks the picture for every. <laughs> Everyone. And I'm like, you bitch. I would I would dump her right there. I don't care. I don't care if she can dance.
1: I mean she's a great dancer. You gotta
4: give her that. Steve, what'd you think yeah. of this movie?
1: I, I really liked it a lot. Uh just because I I don't know, there there's something about certain musicals that I really, really like. It, generally, I don't like musicals. I hate Chicago. Um, I, I, I think it's because I'm going to work out some issues here. We're going to go full Mark Maron.
4: You're a, I, suck, you're, a, you're a stickler for like good portrayals of Chicago. Yeah, that's that's what I'm really a stickler
1: for. No, when, yeah, I, like when I was a kid. My, uh, my my mom <laughs> and my dad would just drag me to musicals all the time so I've seen like Fiddler on the Roof I've seen Sound of Music like I've seen everything fucking Joseph and the amazing Technicolor goddamn Dreamcoat I've seen every musical Under the Sun a hundred times and I did not enjoy going to these things but they were insistent about dragging me to them so I, I just I, I naturally kind of cringe when I hear that I'm getting into a musical but I, I like how it was it was Enough of a movie where it was sort of like a a pastiche of recognizable classic musical tropes and films, but at the same time, it it did enough differently where it didn't do a lot of the hammy stuff that really turns me off to musicals. And it it also works within the limitations of the people that are in the movie. So obviously, like you said, Ryan Gosling isn't Gene Kelly, and there's nothing in the world outside of some grotesque, like, Star Wars-esque CGI that will turn him into Gene Kelly but the movie is, La La Land 2 <laughs> yeah just wait for that one but yeah the, the movie it, it's smart enough and it's structured enough and it even kind of gets into it in the narrative about how if you're gonna be a traditionalist forever like you're just gonna fuck yourself like you have to sort of adapt and change and uh, the movie is smart enough to, to do that itself and not just be singing in the rain or something
3: and that, didn't you find that – like I found that to be kind of an interesting meta-commentary on Chazelle himself because he's clearly obsessed with the uh, bygone era and mm-hmm. yeah, there's this dialogue about you know how are you ever going to innovate if you're so obsessed with the past and I, I feel like that kind of applies to Chazelle and a lot of the valid criticism mm-hmm. toward this movie.
1: Sure and speaking of, of – like a, a lot of the criticism that I've read, especially in the, uh, in the La La Land hot takes is a lot of people take issue with Ryan Gosling's character, uh, and they're like, "Oh, you know, he drags down the movie and he's horrible and blah blah blah." And I think that's one of the things that I really enjoyed about La La Land is Ryan Gosling's a pile of shit. Yeah. He's really a shitty dude, and that's okay
4: because which in, is in weird because he might also right. be like an avatar for a chazelle like in terms of like the him saving jazz could be like a m- meta uh, version of like him saving the musical
5: exactly uh but but i'm not sure the musical needs to be saved though i mean that's, that's maybe one not to things.
4: you but yes. like do people? yeah
5: <laughs> but yeah i i don't yeah. know i think
1: i think that the movie actually works better with ryan gosling as just kind of a douche and and that's all right they're both kind of assholes to each other because their first
6: yeah.
2: interaction he's honking at her on traffic and she gives him the bird and then uh then he bumps into her when he gets fired from the piano job, and even like the first song and dance they have together. The, if you listen to the lyrics, they're just talking about how much you know they pretty much hate the other person and how there's no romance and they're not falling for each other at all. Mm. So it's not like this standard Hollywood uh, meet cute and fall in love dance number. It's like an well, it's like speaking an of which,
4: cute. <laughs> speaking of which, maybe we don't want to talk too much about this uh, to not spoil the upcoming rom com on with uh, La La Land and <clears throat> Umbrellas of Cherbourg. That sounds like a great <laughs> teaser that we have not discussed yet. But I'm gonna I was going to say, are you are
1: you pulling a Trump? Or are you just dropping this live right now?
3: <laughs> we prefer guys, not to discuss rom come on this pod. I don't know what their do, policy do towards want, Black History Month and what have you.
5: Do you guys want me to just come in and just be a fucking douchebag on that conversation? Because I can Kay. totally, I can totally do that. Saving
4: the rom on or saving the yeah. rom comp?
5: Yeah, I <laughs> okay. will absolutely be the fucking douchebag there um, because I really love one of those movies I think the other one is okay but overly Uh,
4: apparently Apparently, I, I do uh, I do that on my own. So I don't know if we need you to do that, but
5: oh, that's fair. No, as long as someone fucks it up, that's on.
4: Hey, that's what Sean does best. <laughs> all right, guys. So here's what we're gonna do. We're actually
1: we <laughs> want to talk more about the best picture Noms, but we realized when we were planning for this that in the past we we've kind of done this episode. It's just a big long super episode, and sometimes some things kind of get uh, brushed on the rug, and we don't have a chance to talk about everything that we want to talk about. So what we're doing is this is actually a two parter. An optimism Vaccine First, I think. Is this? No, it's not.
4: Yeah. wait. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay,
1: yeah. This That'll is the first time right. we've done that. How about that? We're splitting it into two podcasts. So what we're going to do is we're going to kind of switch gears, get off the best pictures for a little bit, and we're going to talk about some of the other categories. And then uh, on episode two, we're going to talk about the rest of the best picture nominations that we didn't get to. So let's talk about Best Director really quickly. Uh, and I just kind of want to run through these and just get a – who's going to win, who deserves to win type of thing. And if there's any movies that pop up that we didn't get to discuss from Best Picture, because obviously there's going to be a lot of uh, you know crossover here, then we can talk about those a little bit more in depth. Uh, so for Best Director, we've got uh, th- the man whose name I still can't pronounce, uh, Director of Arrival, Denis Villeneuve. De- Denis, Vill- <laughs> Denis, Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. This is word, pasta. Denis Villeneuve. <laughs> Charlie Villeneuve. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Big Mel... At Hacksaw Ridge, uh Damien Chazelle in La La Land, Barry Jenkins' Moonlight and uh Kenneth Loner- Lonergan. <laughs> Lonergan Lonergan? Lonergan. Manchester by the Sea. Uh, so what do you guys think? Uh, is there is there a clear winner here for you guys?
4: Mm. Mel Gibson?
5: <laughs> <laughs> if someone could beat him to death with a
4: statue. I don't know, that no, it's right. weird though. It's weird though. So like the things that Damien Chazelle is doing in La La Land is really impressive. Um Like, it it all depends on how you approach these things. Like, director is sort of just like, is it a technical standpoint, like, juggling a whole bunch of things, like visual and narrative? Is it it just, like, depth of narrative storytelling? It it all depends. But I I think what Barry Jenkins does in Moonlight um, is, and we'll talk more about that on the second part, but he takes, like, these three these three parts of this person's life with different physical beings and somehow makes them all fluid in a way that I I thought was really impressive. And there's also some visual technical stuff that he ties into it that just like swooned me. So I I think that he would be my winner, but as far as I think he deserves to win. I don't know if there's like somebody that, well, I I think Chazelle is definitely going to go home with it, but I wouldn't be upset about that.
2: Yeah. yeah, I I agree. I think Moonlight's secretly the one that I'm rooting for to win, just for like the emotional depth that Barry Jenkins pulls out of each and one of his actors. I would almost say that Kenneth Lonergan would be a great choice for that as well, but that might be more on the strength of the screenplay and the in- individual performances of the actors themselves as opposed to his direction. But I think the, the as far as like the scope of the projects go and holding it all together, I think Damien Chazelle has got this on lock
3: yeah, yeah I, personally I i'd be with fine that. with any yeah any of those three you you pick one of those three as long as it's yeah. not mal or denis then we're in good we're in good hands the other yeah, three I, so are you don't well think, i'll even take
4: denis fuck yeah you man. don't th- like i think that's the strength of that movie uh well i mean the cinematography but um and i, I don't yeah i don't know we don't have to talk about this No, i, think, I just but. feel like i feel
5: like moonlight and manchester by the sea would be my two picks personally i i think chazelle is pretty much like shit something's got to go wrong for him not to win this probably yeah um barry jenkins may be in with a shout mm-hmm. but i don't know but i i think moonlight and manchester by the sea would be my two picks out of them and probably moonlight on balance because they are the two films that walk the thinnest tonal line yeah they're the films mm-hmm. that have that the any misstep by the director is more likely to un unravel the whole thing and i think they both do an excellent job of not taking that misstep like Mel Gibson's Hacksaw Ridge it's a joke that he's nominated for best director because <laughs> he is he is the single biggest thing why
4: that, does that uh, happen how does that happen
5: I have no idea. Like, but, but it's it's kind of like uh, it reminds me of Juno a couple of years back, um, which is not a, not a terrible film, but um, Jason Reitman is. got nominated for best director. Okay, it's not a great <laughs> movie. It's not a terrible movie, but everything that's wrong with that movie, to my mind, is Jason Reitman's fault as director. Everything
4: that he does, yeah, everything and, that's he wrong got... with every movie that he does <laughs> is. the stuff that he does like he's so (laughs) So for him to
5: get for him to get nominated for juno as he was it's just like he's the last person to get nominated because everything that's weak about the film is specifically his fault mel gibson it's the same thing everything that's wrong with hacksaw ridge is the fault of a director signing off on it not going okay maybe we need to not like you could hand him the script and there's problems in a script it's the director's fault for fucking filming the script the way it's especially when it's supposedly a passion project like mel Gibson had yeah. full authorial reign on this thing <laughs> he probably wrote the script like hell i don't know had a vision from a nun and followed it through and ted like made that thing but like it's just it's just a joke that mel gibson is best nominated for best director for this thing because honestly if you removed him from that film and put in anyone with even a hint of reserve you probably would have a movie that's probably just boring yeah yeah.
4: well if i was the leader of the free world i would commission alexander payne to go back and redirect every movie jason reitman has ever done
5: (laughs) i would i would commission todd salons to make hacksaw ridge oh (laughs) Oh god
3: i
4: thought you were gonna say i have alexander payne direct hacksaw ridge I'm like what? No. No. Can you imagine, like, up in the air, like, how easy that would be for him to make good? <laughs> like, and how I easy of like up, up in the air. Just no. it, feels
3: yeah, exactly. it feels like an outsider pain.
5: I'm sorry for bringing up Jason Reitman, but that was just an example. No, life is <laughs> yeah, yeah. like
3: a suitcase.
1: You got to pack it up. Uh, yeah,
5: let it go, Sean. Let it go.
1: <laughs> Let's
4: talk best actress. We actually have. What is that we're talking frozen? We're talking animated features already. What are we doing?
5: <laughs> actress, actress. No, let it go. That was a Disney joke.
1: Oh. <laughs> I didn't catch Thank on. You, I'm not picking up what you're putting down, Sean. Uh, do you get? Do you guys have the categories in front of you right now? Yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. Um, yeah. So this is like Jesus. Like almost everyone that's nominated. In this category is, with the exception of La La Land, because you know La La Land is not in a in a Best Picture non movie. So uh Ruth Nega in Loving, Natalie Portman and Jackie Emma Stone in La La Land, Meryl Streep in Florence Foster Jenkins. Did anyone even see that? And uh, I saw that Isabella Huber <laughs> in uh, L. Of course you did, because you you subjected your poor wife to everything. I'm so sorry, everyone.
5: Yeah. I I dedicate this to my wife who didn't <laughs> kill me with a knife. So yeah. Which make good movie in its own.
1: Good lord. Uh, was it was it like misery? Did you just like break her legs and force her to watch?
5: <laughs> no, she just she just sat on the sofa too and I just I put them on and they just happened and every so often she would look at me and it's just like, I'm sorry, I didn't know, but I kinda knew She
4: kept you. trying to like make out with you just to like divert it. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I mean, I say I didn't know, but I mean, Florence Foster Jenkins stars Meryl Streep, who Meryl Streep is, is an incredible in that. I mean, let's talk about the categories. Meryl Streep is really great in Florence Foster Jenkins. She's a really great actress, but she just shows up in garbage time and time again. Florence right. Foster Jenkins has Stephen Frears is directing it. It's got a lot of really good elements to it but it is basically uh, it just takes the lazy route it portrays that it's about a woman who's a it's a real based on a true story and it's about a woman who was basically like a socialite who was a terrible singer but she had the means and the kind of supportive network to go out and sing publicly anyway and she was awful and people kind of laughed at her but other people believed in her, and it's it, they, the film takes it easy really. I'm
4: bored already, even hearing the truncated synopsis. T- <laughs>
5: <It's, it's laughs> Is this terrible. like what's, what's that other one? Terrible. It takes the lazy route of painting Florence Foster Jen- Jenkins as a holy fool. It doesn't give her any kind of inner life. I mean, there's real a question of what did she really think? She was suffering from syphilis. You know, she had this mental degradation going on. The film hardly even touches on it. It's just, it streamlines it into kind of a, it's, it's a movie for old people. Uh, oh, yeah. It's a, it's it's a
1: nice, Best Exotic nice, Marigold Hotel. When you go to the theater just, and you're like, why are all these old people here?
5: Best yeah, Exotic Marigold is, Hotel it's, movie. It's, it's just, <laughs> Meryl Streep is great in it. She does a really good job, but it is just—it's not worth. it Like Meryl Streep just shows up and he's like, she gave that speech recently about you know the importance of acting, and it's like Meryl, when's the last thing you were in a movie? <laughs> Adaptation that in two thousand two.
4: <laughs> yeah yeah Florence foster jenkins hotel
1: Florence foster <laughs> jenkins reminds me of that other movie that i didn't watch that was apparently shitty that starred meryl streep where she got nominated for back best actress was it like august osage county or something like that? that yeah. isn't that a movie yeah mm-hmm. okay and no one saw it I except mean, your grandmother i think
4: the best thing she's done in the past like like in since adaptation is devil wears prada i can't remember if she was even nominated for that but <laughs> anyway all right what's so uh and then Sean
1: or, or or Jack or Jake or somebody, do you guys want to – do you want to give us a quick like just five minutes on Loving and Jackie because I think we'd be remiss if we didn't discuss them at least a little bit?
4: Uh, Jackie is Natalie Portman doing this uh, terrible impersonation. Like, um, so like Jackie is a movie I wanted to like. I think uh, – I know Jack liked it a bit more than me but um, I it has like an interesting style. It has a, an interesting approach but then it, it can't seem to make up its mind what – what approach it wants to follow more and it ends up ditching what i consider the the more interesting thread but um beyond beyond the film as a whole i couldn't uh ever detract natalie portman from the equation you know like where something like viola davis and in fences she just like empowers this character so much and um In Jackie, Natalie Portman is just, like, sucking the life out of who Jackie is, and it just turns into Natalie Portman doing Jackie. Um,
5: yeah, she's I, definitely – she's not yeah. the strong part of the film. I, I did no. enjoy Jackie, and but Nat, it was despite Natalie Portman. And it's – it's again, it's that problem I think that a lot of these biopics have, which is that it's, it's an actor uh, impersonating a person rather than playing them. And yeah. that, like, she's she's thinking so hard about the accent and the way to hold herself that it is just <laughs> it, it, she is she is so in like she's she's in the way and she's front and center of the whole movie
4: like there's yeah, not a, scene that we a without. Jake it's, a impersonation. Yeah, Jake it's very I,
2: hard to be the president's widow. You know, <laughs> they kick you out of the White House when he dies. Like Elmer Fudd.
5: Yeah, you sound like a withering Elmer Fudd. <laughs> yeah, no, literally for the first scene where she talks, I'm like, oh, it's not just JFK getting assassinated in this movie. Like That accent just <laughs> down. Oh, no.
4: I don't uh, smoke. I didn't see it's, Loving, it's though. Like, is, 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 is Loving a movie that we should be watching?
5: I'd say loving is good. Uh, I think it was just myself and Jake who saw that. Um, I yes, would say, too, out of, yeah. yeah, Out of the best actress category, I think Cooper, who we we'll get to, I think Cooper deserves it uh, unquestionably. She's the best of the bunch. I think she's a phenomenal. But Ruth Negga in Loving, I, I think, is she is she really elevates the film. Um, Loving, I think it's a, it's a Jeff Nichols it's actually his second film of 2016 he also put out Midnight Special which I was not at all impressed with, I'm generally a Nichols fan, Loving works a little better for me and part of what I like about it is that it's a story obviously of a, a an interracial couple who got married and it was against the law in the state that they were in at the time, they were basically banished from the state which is a thing that happened right into the 1960s that you could be banished from a, a like north carolina i think was where they were they were living but um so it's it's a, the story of they're basically fighting to the supreme court to topple anti-segregation laws or i guess segregation laws and um, to topple those and so they could li- just live together as a man and wife i mean it's ridiculous but of course now it has uh Similarities to recent legislation about gay marriage and so on. So, I mean, it's something that's come around again. But Nega plays this very quiet role in the film. Again, she's... The film cleverly focuses on the couple rather than the law. It's not, like, full of courtroom scenes. It avoids those. Um, it's much more about just this couple who are trying to keep their relationship together despite this incredible, tremendous external pressure. And Rutanaga just lights up the screen. I think she she's quiet and hopeful about possibility, but she kind of dare not hope so she she just has these quiet shifts of facial expression she steals scenes without saying anything i think she really is a very worthy candidate in this category I, aside from who pair i think she's the one that by far and away impressed me the most here uh,
4: so, yeah it's, steve it's, it's, you you just recently watched um L, what what was your takeaway or your 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 feelings on uh who pair uh, she's brilliant uh i think Based
1: on what I've seen from this category and stuff, I, I think she should win for sure. Her performance is amazing in a movie that's very complex and obtuse. I think, I think, it's, fair Elle, yeah, I think it's fair to say
5: that L. Yeah, I think fair to say that L wouldn't work without Hupé. Like that oh, yes. little she right. anchors the entire. Could movie. Could not function without her. This is. Yeah, I, I mean,
1: agree. we we talk about movies a lot of times that you know. They, they cross a line or maybe they don't get close enough to the line to say something important and L is is interesting because I think it's the first time I've ever seen a movie that is it, it just plays around with gender dynamics and consent and sexuality and and all these different things in really interesting ways to the point where I'm still trying to unpack what it's trying to say.
4: Yeah, it acts um, like what it's doing is is like no, is regular. Like it, you know, it's so self assured, even though it's mm-hmm. doing these things that are, that are just like, yeah, ridiculously like hard to parse.
1: Yeah, and, and she's and she's the thing that makes it all convincing because if if you yeah. don't have her to anchor this film, then it's just a complete disaster. So
4: uh, <laughs> what was that noise? Yeah, she's she's just like sort of like, <laughs> so, yeah. Watching Hooper work in in Elle is just like I don't know. It's it's beautiful just to see her do it it looks so easy what she's doing but um yeah do we want to like talk about what this movie is
1: yeah sorry i I got some really weird feedback from one of you guys a second ago it was was bizarre just straight through my headphones
4: Uh, Uh, was it negative feedback about um your performance so far no my performance has been great
1: uh (laughs) i actually uh, i won the golden globe and i'm nominated for an oscar for best podcast guy uh, so there.
5: God. Oh. But not best podcast yeah. girl. No. That's a separate category. That's a
1: totally separate category, just like the Oscars, yeah. Uh, best pod boy. That's me. Anyway. What do you up for a daytime Emmy, two? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking
2: Lights Camera Jackson over here in the podcast world.
1: I'm going to start referring to myself as that. Uh, yeah, so I guess this movie is, it's sort of about, so, Okay. <laughs>
5: <laughs> I don't even know where to start with this because this what is the it's movie about that opens with a rape and then just continues. Yeah.
1: It's literally like opening credits rape. It's, it's a, okay. So, uh, Isabel Hubert is uh, a successful woman. She actually owns like a, a video game company and mm-hmm. she, in the opening scene of the movie, she is, uh, her house is broken into, she's assaulted and raped. Um, and then we kind of go through this thing where she's, she's, just sort of, like, cleaning up after everything. She doesn't go to the police. She doesn't, you know, do anything. She takes a bath, whatever. And then she just tells people very matter-of-factly, like, I think she's out to dinner with her friends. She's like, yeah, you know, so I guess I was raped. And it's just really nonchalant. And then she goes through this process where, instead of going through, you know, traditional channels, going to the hospital, going to the police, going to all these different things, she decides to sort of take it upon herself to figure out who did this to her. So what it sets up is this sort of uh, like rape revenge movie except that's not what it really is <laughs> and things get kind weird. of weird.
4: It kind of is in a more subtle way at the end but, yeah, it, the way it gets there is is not traditional no, I don't think.
1: No. So in your traditional rape revenge film obviously – I mean it is exactly what the, the subgenre says. It's you know, someone is assaulted and then they, they go back and find their attackers and, and take justice into their own hands. And in this, she goes about some unorthodox ways in in trying to find out who did this to her. And then there's this scene where she she actually unmasks the guy because he comes back to assault her again. And then that kind of sets off this whole second layer to the film where she knows who's doing this to her and she's almost actively inviting or courting this sort of Mm -hmm. weird rapey sex thing
4: so then you get and they thing. start a relationship outside of these like masked encounters
1: yeah exactly and, and that's and that's the other thing and that's the third layer too is is then you're like okay well this is weird but like okay I'm, I'm on board with it and then and then they they take it out of that the masked encounter thing and they make it something entirely different so it just kind of keeps spiraling around like that uh and as you can imagine that sort of relationship is basically—it's—it's—you can't keep that up. It's not—it's untenable. Yeah. It's like—it's gonna—the wheels are it's gonna a, fall off. And boy, a do strange they
5: ever! <laughs> portrait. Yeah, I think it's a strange portrait of kind of of a. It seems to be like a world, a kind of little microcosm of a world of of men who are dominated by women, but on this <laughs> on a, it's on an. an a kind of an under this surface level that the men, societally and in many certain in certain respects, are still dominant. Are still, I mean, one of them is a rapist. He physically dominates a woman against her her consent. It's got various scenes where the men men cheating on their wives and so on. It's got these sexual power dynamics of men. But
4: in the, the video, video are, game stuff,
5: yes. But the men are, yeah. I mean, Isabel pair not only designs video games, but they're sex video games. I mean, they're video games that have rape sequences in them. That the player mm-hmm. controls. It's just a really interesting dynamic. But the men are always uncovered to be petty, kind of neuroses laden character, kind of characters. They're they're always they're they're necess- The way they rely on women, even as they abuse them, kind of suggests that women have this power over them if they if they're like pair and can harness that. It's a mm-hmm. very like the film vacillates between so many different power structures. It is. Very difficult to unpack. I don't claim to understand all of it. I just know that it's a really fascinating film, and you never know what it's going to do next. In- well,
4: I think, I think what 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 Hooper like why we should be singing her praises <clears throat> is that in this film she plays a woman who's going through all this, but like she refuses the character refuses to be victimized. Um, she she refuses to have this the these things um characterize her entire life, right? Uh, or de- define her entire life, and the way that that she's able to just like uphold that um as an actor it, this is just like so powerful to watch, and the film yeah, is like completely contingent on on this like uh, posture it is. I guess
5: she's this incredibly powerful female figure, and but then there's also this dynamic of her inviting rape like mm-hmm. inviting the rapist back in for this sex game it's it's very uncomfortable very mm-hmm. i mean this film basically is is treading this film is not up for a foreign film award and people would say that the word going around was it was france's nomination uh, it's worth mentioning this is directed by paul verhoeven of this is his return to feature filmmaking um and it's very much him pushing buttons again. But this film, but didn't get the foreign film nomination, and a lot of people were saying it was because AMPAS literally just did not want to parse oh, sure. content. They yeah. were just like, no, this is too much. This is, and it is, it's a, this is the kind of film that I could imagine absolutely infuriating some people, just absolutely disgusting them. And but in many, I've heard many feminist writers who've written fantastic. Oh, yeah. Of this, saying that this is such a interesting film too. It's it just can't be ignored. I just don't know where exactly the lines are drawn. I'm not sure Verhoeven and Co know either. I think they're just kind of pushing in around it and seeing where it goes. And who is mm-hmm. really is the pilot more? This is not um the auteur as director. This is very much the actress as auteur. This is who yeah, for sure creating yeah. the film. I think and uh, it's phenomenal to see.
1: Yeah, it's 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 really great. And I think you know if you haven't seen Elliot. Definitely check it out, uh, and might I recommend if if you want to pull a double feature, uh, don't don't do Manchester now. That's what I did this morning. Don't do Straw Dogs, <laughs> and don't do Straw Dogs now. <laughs> uh, there's another movie that came out in 2016, which isn't nominated for anything, but uh, it's it's a great movie. Uh, it's called The Love Witch, which I think Jake, you saw that, right? Hell yeah, I saw uh, it. Yeah, thirty five millimeter, thirty five millimeter baby. But it Alex, it, it you're does. Your heart. It's not <laughs> quite as intense or or difficult to unpack as l because i don't think many things are but it, i think thematically it, it deals with a few of the same things specifically in terms of like female male power dynamics and kind of subverting those things so
4: yeah that's worth well, checking it would out. probably also make a good double feature with passengers from what i hear <laughs> oh god
1: <laughs> uh, we'll talk about that uh best supporting let's just burn through these real quick uh before we have yeah. to you know wrap up our first episode here Viola Davis for Fences, Naomi Harris for Moonlight, Nicole Kidman for Lion. That's Myro's pick. Javier Spencer for Hidden Figures, <laughs> Michelle Williams Manchester by the Sea. I, this, I mean, this is a two-person race, right? This is Michelle Williams versus Viola Davis. Yeah, right? I
4: feel like
5: Viola you, Davis shouldn't be in this category, uh, honestly.
4: Yeah, but who is? Who do you guys think is going to be the clear winner? Because I, I don't know. It, 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 yeah, I don't know. I couldn't I, pick one. It's it, it's Michelle Williams
3: and Viola Davis are both brilliant, and the other three I don't even think are good performances.
5: <laughs> well, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I think yeah, octavia yeah. Spencer is good, and I feel like I feel like hidden figures as much we'll get into that movie i feel it's a film that's it's definitely a well liked film so i I don't know if i'd write that one off
4: i don't know i don't know but i will say that vila davis and michelle williams they're not only like the best in this category they're like two of the like five best actors working Mm -hmm. so it would be a shame like for either of them to to not get recognized but I, I, I don't know. Part of me wants to give it to to, to Davis, but Michelle Williams is so good. Uh,
5: yeah, that, that's the question with it really is I think Michelle Williams is the best supporting actress and Viola Davis is the best performance <laughs> right, right. of whole because she had a whole film. I mean, she's she, mm-hmm. it's, just, it's chalk and cheese. Michelle sure. Williams takes her. She supports this remarkable story with a Man. really remarkable couple of scenes. There's and, like –
4: when i when so i watched manchester by the sea a couple times and i watched i revisited again this last week and there's some like little stuff that michelle williams does that i didn't recognize on the first time like um like when when they're married in the movie early on um and casey affleck comes in drunk and he like picks up the child and he's just like he's like oh you're so handsome and later when he, when they like run into each other in this like parking lot or whatever and and he's like oh this baby's so handsome it like Michelle Williams just like gives this really small like look like sort of double take like that you can kind of tell that it's like like the character like recognizes this interaction between these people but instead of like it being their child and her husband it being like her child and her ex-husband and it's just like these little tiny things that Michelle Williams is so good at and Viola Davis i feel like masters the Big stuff, which both are are wonderful to watch
1: uh yeah i i I don't God, this is hard. I think that you probably have to give it to Michelle Williams just because, like you guys mentioned, if, Villa Davis should probably be in the best actress category and not supporting, so
2: I don't know. Uh here's here's my thoughts on it. Okay. Um obviously it is coming down between these two. I think that and I'm going to say this because Michelle Williams is a little bit younger than Viola Davis, I think she still has probably more time in her sure. career for like a great real showy performance that will probably give her a best actress uh nomination because I mean once you win an Oscar, you win an Oscar. And Viola Davis um promoted herself for supporting to increase her chances of getting the Oscar because she's been nominated twice before and has not gotten it. And I think this is really her trying to pull for it. Um, plus, if Eddie Redmayne can win an Oscar around the time <laughs> Jupiter Ascending comes out, then I think Vila Davis could win an Oscar right after Suicide Squad.
1: <laughs> so, uh, oh dare God, to dream, dare to dream. from that is a winner in my book. All right, guys, here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're actually somehow running a little bit long despite uh, trying to – chop all this stuff up so we're gonna we're gonna cut this episode here and we're gonna jump back in with the rest of the categories and the rest of the uh best picture nominees so if you're listening right now make sure you tune in for the next episode and also make sure you go on itunes rate us give us five stars give us a written review because that increases our visibility you can find us on twitter at optimism vaccine you can email us email us optimism vaccine at com uh you can do some other things too if you want to i don't really care you can find me (laughs) on twitter at steve cuff at that's at steve c-u-f-f jake where do we find you at i'm at jake tropila j-a-k-e-t-r-o-p-i-l-a beautiful sean where do we find you
4: uh at mr glennis cool uh
5: jack uh you can find me at real jack eason
4: the real one just like, nope, and let me news. guess, we're doing put, we're doing putovers on both episodes, correct?
1: We're we're not putting oh, over Jesus shit. <laughs> you fucking kidding me? Get out of here with this. Uh, you can't find Adam Adamaro's anywhere because he's not on Twitter. Well, you can find him on Grinder, but you know, just just look for him. <laughs> just give, swipe right. All right, we'll
3: be back.